You're listening to Pastor Jared Ruddy of City Lights Church. If you can turn with me to the book of Mark, chapter 4. If you're joining us here at City Lights, uh, we've been working through the Gospel of Mark. It is the earliest New Testament letter that's written. Uh, Theologians believe that this was an eyewitness account of the Apostle Peter that was written down. not actually during what was taking place, but actually, most likely, towards the end of the fact that they realized people were passing away and they needed to write down the account of what took place so that generations beyond them could understand. So this isn't a person that's walking with them journaling. This is an eyewitness account of somebody who was literally there. So we're looking at this, uh, the story, the life of Jesus, and today we find ourselves in Mark chapter 4. Now, Before we just hop into it, I do need to give a little bit of context to this. So the Gospel of Mark is the shortest of the four Gospels. It's comprised of 16 chapters. Now, chapters in the Bible are far shorter than chapters in a typical book. Uh, Some of the chapters are 30, 40 uh, verses or sentences. They're rather small, some of them even less, some of them a little bit more. Uh, Chapters were given at a later time. They're broken down so that it's for our benefit. Uh, Really, it reads as a story. But in the beginning of the Gospel of Mark chapter 1, the scripture says this in verse 14 and 15, that Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. The word gospel means good news, an announcement, a story. Saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. I've mentioned this before, but I think this is of uh, utmost importance to recognize this. That Jesus is not the only person to claim to be Messiah. It's really important to to recognize that. Because I think far often we we try to read the Bible as an encyclopedia. We say, okay, I want to know about God, so I'm just going to open up and kind of trace out all these verses and figure out who God is. And when we do that, we actually misunderstand that this is a story about what God uh, has done in time and space in history. So when Jesus comes on the scene and says, the kingdom of God is at hand, the time is fulfilled, what that meant to his hearers specifically was this. The Jewish Jewish people, all the way back to creation, particularly then to Abraham. God comes to a man named Abram and says, I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to make a nation out of you that blesses this whole world. And in doing so, Abraham believes and says, okay, God, I'll follow you wherever you'll take me. And because he does this, then we understand that he has 12 sons. And these 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel, which then split into two for a temporary season, then unite back together. And in doing so, what's amazing about this is that God makes a promise to them, and the promise is this, that through your nation, I'm going to bless the world. I'm going to fix this broken world. I'm going to make all things new. I'm going to restore it. See, everybody has a worldview, regardless of uh, if you're a Christian, if you're a Muslim, if you're Hindu. It doesn't matter what religious background you come from. Everyone has a worldview, and it's comprised of uh, mainly three things. Uh, what the world is supposed to be, it, why it's broken, and how it's going to get back on track. Now, everybody answers those three questions, and you can reverse them and put them in all different orders, but everybody has some idea that what the world is supposed to be like. I've personally never met a person, and, and if you're that guy that's just kind of like to argue with everything, and you're trying to be like, that's me, no, it's not, all right, just settle, right? No, everybody has that in them that we go, this world's just not the way it's supposed to be. Just something just doesn't feel right. And we don't really know what it is. But unique to Christianity, unlike every other religion, it roots the problem not in another people or a race. 
It doesn't say, the, the message of Christianity doesn't say, well, if, you, if this people group would be quiet and if this people group would speak a little louder, then the world would be right. If this political party would prosper and this one would uh, you know, just demise or if Apple computers would rule the world or whatever your deal is, we all know that there's something that needs to get this world back on track. But Christianity, unlike every other religion, roots the problem not in a people group or in a particular race or a political party, but it roots the problem and solution inside of all of us in that we are needing not a teacher, but a savior. It's interesting. So when Jesus comes and claims that the kingdom is here, the gospel, the time is fulfilled, to the hearers there, they were looking for a Messiah that would bring this world back into focus. We understand from history, and there's great documentation on this, there was about a dozen other people that claimed to be Messiah in this first century time. That's fascinating. And not only did they claim to be Messiah, but history shows that they had this band of rebels that followed them. So that there were all of these messianic movements, and interestingly enough, some of them died a death of crucifixion just as our Lord and Savior. That's fascinating. Why? Because Roman crucifixion was reserved for insurrectionists. It was for the worst of worst. It wasn't just like, hey, let's kill a person. It was, how can we, this person is uh, rising against Rome. At that time, and we understand this again from history, Pax Romana, Roman peace, that Rome was actually this incredible empire with, with little disruption, although it had its internal scuffles. But really, it was this Roman peace. And yet Jesus, in the middle of it, says, the Messiah is here. I'm making all things new. It's time. Now, what's amazing about that is that we see, unlike the other uh, messianic movements of the first century, Jesus does something that nobody else does. See, Jesus has power over creation. He has power over the human heart. He has power to forgive sins. He has power to heal sickness. He's not just a magician walking around and uh, tricking people into believing this apocalyptic story of it's the end of the world. Because you have to understand that at the time that this happened, and I just want you to, to recognize that this story has so much more weight than just we're about to read. In the Old Testament, the books that lead up to that, between the Old and New Testament, there's what's considered 400 years of silence. But there was no prophet on the scene that was bringing forth God's word. There's 400 years of silence, nothing's coming forward, and the people of God are weary. They're weary. There's actually a group, and that's where maybe you've seen the Dead Sea Scrolls, if you've ever heard that phrase. Those were found in what's considered the Qumran Caves. Uh, the, this was a community of um, a people that focused on the end of the world, waiting for the Messiah in this intense longing for him to come. Intense longing. This wasn't just something that they were going about on their way, as we tend to do, reduce this down to, how do I make God happy? That wasn't even in their mindset. Their mindset is, God, how are you going to bring this world back to the way it's supposed to be? And I want to suggest to you, wh whether you're Christian or not, I would challenge you to really consider what is your worldview? Is this world an accident? If it's not an accident, everybody has what the world should be, right? Why it's broken and what's going to get it back on track? And I want to suggest to you this morning that the only plausible solution to that is Jesus Christ, who's come into human history. Let's read together. Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Now, understanding this, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he begins to teach in what's referred to as a parable. A parable is simply a story to communicate God's truth. He's communicating God's truth to us 
in, in a story, and it's for our benefit. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside him on the land. Now, this is just very uh, two, two thoughts. A large crowd, again, messianic figure. Why does he go on a boat? Onto the sea, your voice projects over water. Very simply, he's trying to speak to a large crowd. What does he begin to say? He's teaching them in many parables. And his teaching said to them, listen, a sower went out to sow seed. And he sowed some seed, and it fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil. It immediately sprang up, but since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell on the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seed fell into the good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and in yielding 30, 60, and 100-fold. And then watch this, verse 9, And he who has ears, let him hear. Now, I'm going to make a confession to you in starting this, uh, this you know, sermon this morning. The only thing I can grow is weeds and grubs. I don't know if I've got a gift or what. Um, if Mark and Nicole know, we live in a duplex there underneath us. I've got an incredible gift for growing weeds in our backyard. I started a garden. It lasted until I stopped with the garden. I've never been actually able to get the seed into the ground and tend to it. Um, I actually came across some sort of weed that required an actual lawnmower. So first, I just have to say, in starting off talking about uh, this idea of gardening, I'm not necessarily the person to communicate that. However, what I think is interesting about this is that Jesus tells a story. We have to understand it's not just a nice story. Well, a sower came and sowed some seed, and it fell on this, it fell on that, fell on that. Some grew, some didn't, the end. I'm not going to take t- such a long time this morning because it's a short story, but let me say this. There's a few things I want you to see out of this text, and it's really kind of an aerial picture of what God's doing in humanity all around us. Three things I want you to see this morning. Number one is a gracious father. Gracious father. What's amazing here is it says a sower went out to sow seed, and he just scattered it, almost uh, aimlessly, if you will. It's odd. I mean, when, you, when we plant a garden, other than myself, when I've actually seen people plant it, you take incredible care with what you, what you do with those seeds. You, you know, you prepare the land, you till the land, you put fertilizer in it, whatever that is, to get that ready. But yet we see this sower comes out to sow seed, and what does he do? He just throws it everywhere. He just kind of throws it. But what we'll see in just a moment is this. As Jesus begins to explain this parable, parable's not about a reckless uh, person that doesn't have intention, but someone that is recklessly in love with this world. It's interesting. We see this as we continue reading. And when he was alone, those around him said, the twelve asked, why do you speak in parables? And he said to them, to you it's been given to know the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those on the outside, everything is in parables. And then he quotes from Isaiah. I'll unpack that in a minute. It's an Old Testament verse he's applying. That they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Jesus goes on to say, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand everything else? The sower sows the word. Watch this. The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. Jesus begins to say, let me break this down for you. Let me explain what this is. He says there's three classifications of people in response 
to the sower sowing. First he says, what is the sower? The Word of God. Now the Word of God is not simply the Bible. Yes, it's the Bible. But more importantly, the Bible testifies to the living Word, which is Christ. Now this is amazing. I want to read a quote to you from Augustine. He's an early church father. He said this, in speaking of the mystery of godliness, we actually think about this. Like Christianity, what is it really about? It's about God becoming man. That, 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 that's a scandal. That's not right. Now, we're in such a, uh, you know, I'm not a political commentator, but, you know, we live in a world where there's constant bickering back and forth over policies. We're in a democracy, and it's a, it's a wonderful thing to live in. It really is. It's a beautiful form of government, democracy, where we're able to vote and our voice is expressed. We have to understand that fundamentally, in our lives, particularly in relating to God, although we're Western uh, Americans, not Western as in you got the holster, but Westerners, all right? You can track with me. Matt, so much. Or everyone's sleeping this morning. That's okay. I'm just going to, I've got a sermon. I'm preaching whether you're listening this morning. So, as Westerners, we have this tendency to kind of feel like we've got a right. We've got to vote. You know, like, let my voice be heard. But the truth is, what you see about this is that the Father sows a seed without the ground ever asking for it. The ground doesn't say, you owe us a seed, or would you come and do this for us? No, the Father, on his own accord, sows a seed out of his own prerogative. And what is the Word? The Word, of course, is Christ. The book of John chapter 1 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus, God himself, God incarnate on this world. Augustine says this, Man's maker was made that he, the ruler of stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread of life might hunger, that the fountain would thirst, that the light would sleep, that the way would be tired on its journey, that the truth might be accused of false witnesses, that the teacher would be beaten with whips, that the foundation be suspended on wood, on a cross, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. It's interesting. The mystery of the gospel is that the father sows his son into the world. This is God incarnate. This is God eternal taking on the limitations of a temporal body. This is God omnipotent, knowing everything, growing as a child, learning this world. This is God omnipresent, God everywhere, limited to the confines of a physical body. This is God all-powerful, dying willingly at the hands of Roman soldiers. This is outrageous. See, unlike every other religion, you have to understand this, and even unlike those that would facilitate Christianity in a way other than what honors God's word, says that I can somehow gain God's approval or affirmation by something I do, but yet that's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is that his grace is spread freely to all, and it's up to us on how we respond. It's amazing. God doesn't, um, he sows a seed and he basically says, here I am. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? He doesn't look and say, all right, now I'm God. And if you want to come back on right terms with me, if you want to know me, if you want to serve me, if you, if you want to be in right place with me, then this is what I want you to do. No, that's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is to receive his work as we sang today. He stood in our place. Continuing on, 
He breaks this down into three groups of people. Remember, some falls on the path, some falls on the thorns, some falls in good soil. He says, this is it. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. Then he goes on to say the next group, verse 16. And, and these are the ones on the rocky ground, the ones who hear the word immediately. They receive it with joy, but they have no root in themselves. They only endure for a while. But when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the world, immediately they fall away. And finally, he says this, and others are the ones sown among thorns. These are the ones who hear the word, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, proving it unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word, accept it. They bear fruit 30, 60, and 100-fold. I want to show you this just for a few moments. The mystery of Christianity is that God willingly laid his life down for all of us. Not in just something that is some religious prayer, uh, it's not something that we just recite on a Sunday morning. God, you know, forgive me of my sin. You know, I love you. Amen. That, that's not the point of it. Um, you know, talk to your spouse like that. You know, like, I, I love you. You're great. I saw a little comic uh, that popped up on Facebook. What if we would communicate with people the way that we pray? I thought it was hilarious. It starts off like, uh, uh, what was it? It was like, dear babe, could you go to the, could you go to the store, babe, and just uh, pick up milk, babe, and just... Just get that milk, babe. Just, dear babe, would you do that for me, babe? Um, I believe you can, babe. I know you can. I've heard you say that you can, babe. And I'm just trusting you this morning, babe. In, uh, in your beautiful name, I ask this. Babe. Right? See, God can, God can see through that. So the idea of receiving this, I want you to see that as he breaks down different people's responses to the message, to the word, that you, regardless of if you are a Christian or just kind of passively hearing or, or, or working through faith, everyone is, has a response. Um, Christianity is something that you have a response either out of intentionality or by default. And he begins to say that here's this beautiful message that if you understand that the, the incarnation, God becoming man, what I just read, that, that life would die. That the bread, the, the very thing you're searching for would go hungry in your place. The very thing you're thirsting for would become thirsty for you. This is, this is it. The very creator of everything dying at the hands of the very people he created. Wow. Only, only our God could do that, but yet... In spite of that, these are different responses that people have. And I think surprisingly enough, he breaks them down for us like this. One, it falls on the path and Satan comes and snatches it away. It's just garbage. Just kind of a story. You know, this whole Christianity thing we're talking about, it doesn't really relate to real life. It's just, you know, it's, it's, it's a legend. It's a myth. It's something that didn't exist. It's just something that, uh, you know, pastors, I don't know, have an ego and want to have a crowd listen to them every week. Let me just say this. This is not a hobby that I'm doing. This is a call. I'd, I'd much rather be doing something else than this, to be completely honest with you. But I believe this, and this is what he's asking me to do, so I'm doing it. 
So this isn't a myth, it's not a legend, and, and if that's where you're struggling today, I would love to point you in some wonderful resources that can show you and help you work through your intellectual struggles. Um, listen, God's not afraid of your brain. That's really good news. God's like, what are we going to do about this guy? He's smart. He, he, he's not worried. He, he wants, he gave you the brain to think. So you can explore him, you can question him, you can test him, you can try to figure it out. That's okay. You can go for it. But some people, the seed comes and it's snatched. Satan just takes away. It's just a lie. The word Satan literally means deceiver, twister. This isn't, this isn't real. Then he goes on to say this, and this is where I think, honestly, that if we're truly reading the scripture, although all of us go, well, I'm in church this morning. Of course I'm bearing 30, 60, and 100 fold. Th- this is what tests my heart because he begins to address the idols of our lives. What does he say? Verse 17 Some falls on rocky ground, springs up for a little bit, but the moment tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, Jesus Christ, they fall away. What is he saying there? This is interesting because he begins to list idols. The only reason you wouldn't follow Jesus is if you're following another god. Because everyone has a god, whether it's uh, spiritual that you, you you can't necessarily... Uh, you, you know, you make up your own religion or if it's money or if it's whatever. And he actually begins to list what are these gods. Why does somebody reject Jesus? Why do they not fully embrace who he is because of tribulation and persecution? Let me explain what an idol looks like in a person's heart. We know something's an idol when a good thing becomes ultimate. When something that's nice becomes something that I have to have. And you see this in uh, all different types of life. It can be And honestly, most people are different uh, when it comes. John Calvin actually said our hearts are idol-making factories. We're constantly producing these factories of idols. And we don't necessarily realize what it is until our heart, until it's touched. So if you're in a relationship and your relationship breaks down, if it's, uh, you know, if it's not an idol, it's a rough time. If it's an idol, you're devastated. If, uh, If a spouse or parent dies, you're broken, heart-wrenched. Everything crushes at that moment. If it's an idol, life stops. It no longer has purpose. It no longer has meaning. If money is the idol, as long as you have it, you're happy, right? That's good. Life's going great. Why is that? I just got a raise. Oh, it's great. The moment something goes bad at work, and I'm not talking about, listen, I want to be very careful. I'm not talking, Christianity is not being stoic. It's not this idea of, like a uh, RoboCop, or I don't even think that's relevant anymore. I apologize, right? What if, it's not this idea that you just move around and you're untouched or unfazed by anything. It's the idea that something can touch you, but when it hurts, where do you go with it? When you lose the job, you go, this is, this is, this bites, this is awful. But I know that this is temporal and I have something that's beyond money, that's beyond value. Great. If it's a relationship and that relationship uh, erodes, if I guess that, that can happen, it disappears, disintegrates, whatever what ha- happens. In that moment, you begin to understand that preservation, self-preservation is everything to you. Jesus here is talking about that you only have so much room in your heart. You only have so much room for passion. You only have so much room for pleasure. And Jesus is not saying this idea that they didn't all hear the same message. They didn't all experience the same offer of grace. But these hearts were already full of other loves. 
They were already full. The idea that persecution or suffering would cause you to run away from Christ or to rebel or walk away simply says this, that your approval is fundamentally in man over God. When somebody comes against you, accuses you falsely of something, that's the idea of their persecution. He's saying, listen, I'm sowing myself, yet your heart has no room for me. He goes on to say this, others hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word. My message this morning is that there's a gracious father. Gracious father that sows to everybody. He says, here it is. Everyone. There's a forsaken seed, though. This creator, if he's really the creator and we're not, if he's really God and we're not, he writes the rules. What's amazing to me is, you know, we get into these conversations, and I'm not saying this down, I'm saying this across, because I have these questions a lot. Why would God allow this? I was talking with Jesse the other day, and I said, you know, I feel like as humanity, we're caught in this uh, game of life almost, not the little board game you spin, you get to be a doctor, you know, with a spin of the thing. (laughs) That would be really nice if that was all you got. I'm making 120 grand, what do you do? You know, um, the other guy. Didn't you hate that when you play the game of life? Somebody gets the doctor on the first spin, and they're like, you know, the whole, all right, sorry. We're, we're caught in this thing, though. And it's funny because we're trying to figure out the rules of the game while it's already in motion. Something happens, and we go, why? Why, why is that happening? Why? We're not the author of the game. And we have this limited, finite perspective in the middle of it. We're kind of going, what's up with this? Why did this happen? Why did that happen? You're not allowed to do that. And God's like, listen, just, just you're in this thing. I'll bring, I'll let you know the full picture. Absolutely, eventually. And some of us, honestly, there's so many more answers out there if we would just ask. But yet we're trapped in this thing. And because of that, there's this forsaken seed. Here's Christ. He offers everything to everyone for free. Book of Timothy says that God desires all to come to a knowledge of salvation. All at once, that's his desire. Everybody would. But then finally, the story is this. There's a gracious father, a forsaken seed, but there's a harvest. Your life will bear fruit. It'll bear something. It'll either bear the image of your creator. It'll bear the image of your idolatry. It'll bear something. Idols, fundamentally, Jesus is saying, the reason that people won't accept me, it's not because this isn't a good story. You know, what's amazing is Jesus doesn't show up and says, and he never, you know, puts out a bad church sign that says turn or burn. He never does that. He doesn't show up and say, you're going to hell if you don't believe in me. He doesn't, that's not his message. He doesn't show up and say this. What his message is, you can either have me or have yourself. You can either listen to the creator, follow the creator, worship the creator who designs the way life is supposed to work, or he says, you can determine your own rules. And I would suggest to you that that's also hell on earth just as much as it is hell in eternity. God is the only environment we're created for. And what does he go on to say this? Finally, closing, that those who hear the word accept it. This isn't a passive acceptance. This is, uh, we've got to be careful that, you know, we reduce belief down to, like, opinions almost. To be honest with you, it's scary. Somebody asks you, do you believe in birth control? 
Well, do I believe it exists? I mean, the facts are there. Or do I believe, or do I believe that it's something that, you know, a husband and wife should make a choice on, right? As you're familiar, the Catholic Church is against birth control, correct? Yes. So you, you, you kind of look at these things. It's something you believe in. When he says accept, we have to be careful that we don't reduce faith down to something that we just kind of intellectually assent to. to I believe that. That's pretty good. I'm, yeah, I'm a fan. Or like we kind of pick our vote between Jesus and the other religions, and we go, that's probably the most plausible, so I'm okay with it. No, Jesus is saying this, that when that seed, if you accept his word and it comes into your life, it bears fruit in everything. It doesn't just come into you. It becomes who you are. My prayer this morning as we close is this, that you would see the grace of God. And if you're your own savior this morning, and I mean that in a way that you could potentially even be attending church, reading a Bible, doing spiritual things, but you're gauging your affirmation and approval with God on how much you do for him. Dear babe, can you bring the milk, babe? Thank you. It's this robotic exchange where I say something and in turn, we negotiate with them. You know, when you negotiate something, you go to a yard sale. Anybody like yard sailing? No one likes yard sailing? All right. That's like a couple of yard sailors. My grandma is just, wow, she's, she's going to go until she kicks it. She's, she's out of control. She's got a lot of yard sailing under her belt. You show up in your yard sale, right? You look at those items and you see it and it's like five bucks. And my grandma, although a wonderful Christian woman, I question at times her character because she robs people at yard sales. It's like $5 for something. She'll be like, or my grandpa got these like uh, tailor-made golf clubs. It's like a couple hundred dollar thing for like five bucks. Like really. My grandpa's like, you see these things? I don't even need them. I think you just robbed that man (laughs) while he like, and he thanked you for it. Weird, oddly enough. It's the only thing in American society where we sell junk and rob each other and we enjoy it. But when you see something and you look at that in the yard sale and you're like, how much is that? It's $5. And what do you do? You kind of look at them and you go, no, I'm not interested. And you walk away. They're like, wait, 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 wait. You're like, I'll give you 50 cents. No. And then you come back, a dollar, 75. This is my car. You just bought for 75 cents. And you feel no remorse. And when you leave, it's not a good yard sale unless you win. Right? Because you have to get the better end of the deal. You know, negotiation only works if both parties are in need of something. You can't negotiate with somebody that doesn't need anything. You can't. God is not interested in your negotiation and your human effort to try to please him because he doesn't need it. He, and I, I, he doesn't need your worship either. He wants your worship. He doesn't need it. Why does he want it? Because you were created for it. That's it. Isaiah 43, 7. For you were created for his glory. The mission of City Lights Church is simply this. We exist that the people of Northeast PA would find their ultimate joy in Christ. Your ultimate joy. Because riches, that'll deceive you. Physical beauty, you're going to get old. It's just the nature of it. Botox, how many people can admit, if you're doing that here, I'm not against it. That's your deal. I want to be careful here. All right? Don't be poking me with needles and something's swelling on me. But sooner, sooner or later, sooner or later, I don't care how much Botox lifts your face up, the rest of body parts, are, we're going to get old. It's just, it's just life. But yet somehow we're trying to compete with this thing called time. And I've got great news for you. 
time itself broke into time and provided a solution to live beyond time. Why do I want you to know Jesus this morning? Because he's the ultimate joy, the only joy that will ultimately satisfy you. Wealth, riches, uh, persecution, the reverse of that would be the approval of man, all of that. But this morning, if I could have the worship team come, we're going to close with our song. My hope is this. You wouldn't look at Christianity as just something where, yeah, I accept it casually. I look at it and go, yeah, I'm a fan of that. That's good. Or I look at the other religions and it's, you know, like as if you have to place a vote. No. You missed the whole point of it. My point is that you would recognize that your soil is incomplete without him. This morning, let's stand together as we sing this song. We're going to sing the story of the good news this morning. Christ died in our place. Let me, let me say this. We're not going to have a specific um, response where people would come forward. But if you are on, uh, on the brink of committing to faith, or you're asking, what does this look like? You know, what does it mean to be a Christian? Does it just mean simply to come to church every Sunday and, you know, throw some money in the offering and, and uh, enjoy? You know, that, that's not it. The scary part is you can do that without ever being a Christian. It's, that's, it's really this strange thing. It's true, though. Look at the story of Jesus. He's not looking for people just to approve of him. But if you're looking and say, you know what? I really want to go for this thing. I want to grow in Christ. Maybe you're already doing that. Keep doing it. But maybe you're new here and you're hearing this message and you go, wow, this sparks something in me. And I know I'm made for this and I know there's something more. I would be honored to speak with you and many of our other leaders here would love to point you in just real tangible places of how we can meet with God and grow in Christ. Can we sing together this morning? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you're a gracious sower. That's just such good news that the ground wasn't crying out, hey, give me a seed. But Lord, you came on your own accord and offered grace to everyone regardless of if they accept it or not. That's scary. You didn't look and say, well, if you do these right things, then I'll send my son. No, Lord, you, out of your perfect triune character, three in one, Father, Son, and Spirit, sent forth your son in time and space and flesh. And you died for us and for all this creation, regardless of if we receive you. And Lord, this morning, We want to do more than passively accept. We can't negotiate. But Father, we need you. Lord, I'm privileged to preach your word this morning. And I pray now through your spirit, you would make this more than just information. But the information would fire our hearts. It would fuel our hearts to love, to know, to enjoy, to respond, to be your disciple, Lord. We love you in Christ's beautiful name we pray.